it's interesting that the two-year-old says no, and the 30 or 40 or 50-year-old always says yes. It says a lot about our sin nature. We say no when we're young, when we should say yes, and when we're old, we say yes when we should say no. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, a daily walk through the Bible with Dr. Carl Brogy, Senior Pastor of Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. In our study of the Book of Romans, we have devoted the past few weeks to Chapter 6, which is filled with passages that contain deep theological truths. Last week and earlier this week, we began a message entitled, How to Really Change, in which Pastor Brogy looked at the metamorphosis that takes place in the life of a believer beginning at the time of Christian conversion. As we pick up today, Pastor Carl examines Romans 6.12, which admonishes us to not allow sin to reign in our mortal bodies, lest we obey its lusts. Sin expresses itself through our minds, through our hands, through our feet, through our bodies. That's how it finds its outlet. Now, one day, our mortal body will be glorified, and sin will be forever out of the reach of our bodies. We will be just like the Lord Jesus when we see Him. But in the meantime, we have to cooperate with the grace of God. Put out in the margin, if you would, next to verse 12, 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. 1 Corinthians 9, 25 to 27. I want you to see the balance between divine sovereignty and providence and personal responsibility. Listen to these words. They're on the screen. Paul writes, Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. He's talking about the athletic games in the first century. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable Therefore, he says, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. But I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. Now, what does an athlete do? He brings his body under the subjection of his will. I had been studying yesterday for about nine hours, and I still had a few more hours work, and my mind was stale, and I thought, I I need to go running. Now, everything in my mind says, don't do it. Go lay down on the couch. But I needed to bring my body in subjection to my will, and so I went and I ran ran five miles. Listen, if an athlete can do that, because he is competing just for a perishable wreath, that long after he's dead, no one will know what that trophy was for or whose trophy it was. When we cleaned out my mother's house, there was a whole shelf of trophies. There must have been 50 on there, and they all just went into the trash barrel, every one of them. A bunch of tarnished trophies. Those are perishable things. We are to discipline ourselves spiritually, in a way, for an imperishable wreath. Now, again, notice, if you will, we have a choice. We're not to let sin reign in our bodies. There's a choice that we must make, and if we don't make it, we're going to be in trouble. But there's a a presentation of yielding, a a daily decision that we make each and every day. You see a yield sign, right? Some of your translations say present. Some of your translations say yield. It's the same thought. There's not a single English word that can capture it. But what I want you to see here is that when you see a yield sign, what are you doing? You're saying, well, I'm going to let this driver go by because he has the right of way. Well, God is saying, listen, in your heart, in your mind, 
You need to yield yourself. You need to give me the right of way. Why? Because I have control over your body, over your mind, over your will, over your entire life. Now, it's not enough to make a resolution with the members of your body. And that's what a lot of people do, Christians and non-Christians. That's the theme of Lent. We don't celebrate Lent here because it's not in the Bible. If it was, we'd be doing it. Someone asked me last week, why don't you celebrate Lent? It's not in the Bible. If it was in the Bible, we'd do it. If the early church practiced it, we would do it. If the reformers thought it was important because they saw it in the scriptures, we'd do it. It's not there. That's why we don't do it. But there are some people who white knuckle it. You know, they hold the back of their chair and they'll say, I'm never going to smoke another cigarette if it kills me. I'm never going to touch another drop of alcohol if it kills me. And there's a certain degree of success that some people can find with that. But it's not freedom. It's a white knuckle experience. And most of the time, that white-knuckle experience doesn't last very long because in a short time, you're back into the same old sin and defeat. No, God wants us to understand that there's a different method, that our victory does not rest on our moral resolve. It rests on a spiritual principle. We are to yield, but not just to yield in our own strength. We are to yield, notice as it's qualified, as those alive from the dead. We give into God, but we give into God as one who is alive from the dead. Now, we're going to explore that in depth when we come to the eighth chapter. That's why these three chapters are inseparable, and I don't want you to miss that. But think about this for a moment right now. Sometimes, you know, people will quote the book of James. In James 4 and verse 7, it says, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Well, when that verse is quoted that way, it's just not true. The devil's not just going to flee from you because you resist him. He's not in the least bit afraid of you. When Michael, the great archangel, has a confrontation over the body of Moses, he dared not to bring a charge against Satan. He dared not rebuke him in his own strength. He said, the Lord rebuke you. What does the verse say? The verse says in whole... Submit therefore to God, or we could say yield therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee to you. That's very different. It's as we yield, as we submit to God, recognizing that apart from him I can do nothing, that it is then that the door is swung open to experience the power of God. God the Holy Spirit is resident in every child of God. If you've been saved, you have him. It's called the baptism of the Spirit. That's why we are never, ever, ever commanded to be baptized by the Spirit. But we are commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we submit, as we yield to the will of God, as those alive from the dead, there's a liberation that we begin to experience. Now, the Greek word that is presented here, present or yield, is an interesting word. Jesus uses the same word in Matthew 26, 53, when he said, My Father will at once put at my disposal, same word as yield, put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. In other words, we are to put our bodies at the disposal of God Almighty. Do you know what the problem a lot of us suffer from? The problem we suffer from is we want to see how close we can get to sin without crossing the line. And God wants us to do just the opposite. He wants us to live far away from the realm of sin. Verse 12, again, therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you should obey its loss. And do not go on presenting the members of your body as instruments of unrighteousness. He is saying, stop. 
He's saying, just saying, no, it's a negative command. Now, in the original, this is what we would call a present imperative. You could literally put it this way. Therefore, stop with an exclamation mark. Stop letting sin reign in your body and stop presenting the members of your body to sin. That's the implication in the original. Have you ever thought about the fact that you do not have to teach a young child to go around saying no? A little three-year-old doesn't come around the house saying, yes, mommy, yes, mommy, yes, mommy. He or she says, no, mommy, no, mommy, no, mommy. Now, it's interesting that the two-year-old says no, and the 30 or 40 or 50-year-old always says yes. It says a lot about our sin nature. We say no when we're young, when we should say yes, and when we're old, we say yes, when we should say no. And so the average believer has left out of his vocabulary a very simple word, and it is the word no. Say it with me. No. Louder. No. Louder. No. I've never had so many people tell me no at once. <laughs> but that's the kind of resolve he's speaking about here. Do not go on presenting your body as instruments of unrighteousness. And then the next verb is an interesting verb. It's an aorist. But he says, present yourselves. This is a decisive decision you make. Present yourself to God as those alive from the dead. And so the command not to do something is ongoing. It's keep going. Keep stopping. Keep saying no. But then there's an aorist where he says, present yourself. Now, sometimes this heiress tense is preached in such a way that they would say there needs to be a once and for all presentation to God. And so if you heard a lot of testimonies given in the 1970s and 80s, it's interesting how they differ from a lot of testimonies given here in this century. In the 70s and 80s, I would often hear people share their testimony, well, I received Jesus Christ as my Savior when I was 15, but then I submitted to Him as my Lord when I was 21. And so they would say, well, you know, first you got saved at eight, and then you submitted to his lordship at 15 or whatever it was. And they had this kind of two-stage process. Now, listen, uh, there is a degree of truth to what we call lordship salvation, but most of the lordship salvationists are not consistent. They preach the gospel in one way for an adult in an entirely different way for a child. One famous lordship salvationist, we have his book written to a child and the way he presents the gospel to a child is different from the way he presents it to an adult. God doesn't have two gospels. You tell me a child has to think through lordship salvation? What does a child know? He knows he's a sinner, that he's guilty, and inherent in recognizing that something is wrong is a desire for it to change. So when you come to Christ, you don't come just getting fire insurance, saying, well, now I'm saved and I can keep on sinning. No, inherent is there's a conviction of the Spirit. When He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. But there is a sense in which there's an ongoing progressive dimension to the Lordship of Christ. If there were not, then there would not be hundreds of commands given to save people in the New Testament as to what they should do. But the word here is a decisive commitment that we make. Do not keep on presenting yourself to sin, but decisively choose to present yourselves to God. A once and for all, now and forever, a decision that may be repeated on numerous occasions. 
But still, there's a definitiveness, and very often this happens when a person gets tired of the struggle within, and they finally give up, and they say, God, I can't, but they recognize he can. And the real reason, though, for some of us that we have no real victory in our life is we have absolutely no intention of being any more holy than we are right now. And we wonder why we struggle. Oh, I want to know the Lord. Well, you know him about as much as you want to know him. And some of us, we've just made peace with sin. And we've yielded to sin instead of yielding the members of our body to God. And so when we start to know this truth that when Christ died, he died. When he was raised, he was raised. When I understand that in my mind, when I consider it and I make it a heartfelt truth because it is so true, I can reckon it for myself, then there's a decision I need to make. I present and I keep on presenting myself to God as an instrument of righteousness. Now, why does he say this? Why does he ask us to do this? Well, number one, because your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Who identified you into the body of Christ so that when he died, you died. When he was buried, you were buried. When he was raised, you were raised. God, the Holy Spirit did. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and you're not your own? And so we are to live to glorify God. And so he says here, we're to present ourselves as instruments. Now, again, this is an interesting word. Later on in Romans 13 and verse 12, this identical word is translated armor. And then in John 18 and verse 3, when Jesus is arrested, the same word is translated weapons. And outside of the New Testament, in first century Koine Greek, it's translated as a tool that you would use to do something with. What's his point? His point is, is that your body is God's tool God's instrument and God's weapon to be used for His glory. And if you think about it, there are many people in the Scriptures who presented their members, their bodies, as tools or weapons for God. Moses held the staff in his hand as they conquered Egypt. David took his sling and he defeated the Philistine. Uh, the mouth of the prophets were used to preach the coming of Messiah. The feet of the Apostle Paul were used to spread the gospel. The eyes of the Apostle John were used to see a vision that he records in the Revelation. But the Bible also equally accounts the fact that there are people who use their members for the wrong sinful purposes. David, with his eyes, looked on his neighbor's wife with lust. David, with his mind, plotted a wicked scheme. With his hand, he signed an order that would kill Uriah, Bathsheba's husband. The apostle Peter, interestingly, uses the same terminology that Paul uses here in Romans 6. In 1 Peter 2, 11, he says, I urge you to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Both Peter and Paul are urging us to use our bodies as weapons for God. And so don't let the enemy, in essence, you say, saying, use your body. Let God use your body as his instrument to accomplish his purpose. And so a man wants to be a holy man of God. But then he goes home and he watches the average movie or rents the average DVD that the world is watching, filled with fornication and adultery and all kinds of things. And he wonders why he's defeated, because he's presented his eyes as an instrument of unrighteousness. A woman wants to be a holy woman of God, and she downloads music that has all kinds of wicked lyrics in it. 
and an ungodly beat. Yes, some can't discern ungodly beats because they haven't grown up, but there are ungodly beats, just like God can use music to praise Him and to even drive away evil spirits, the Bible teaches. We can attract evil with bad music as well. And so Jesus taught that we are to be careful to what we hear and how we hear. And so the war against holiness is based on a decision that you are partly responsible for. As you yield yourself, your body, your body parts as instruments of righteousness to God. And if you give the devil just an inch, he'll jump in and he'll take the throne We're not to allow our eyes to look what lost, our ears to listen to wicked, bad things. We're not to allow our feet to take us to places we shouldn't go, our mouths to drink things we shouldn't drink. We are to yield the members of our body. Look again, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But here's the positive side. Present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as the instruments of God to righteousness. Now, again, this practice is called sanctification. When we come next time to verse 19, or in the King James, it's referred to as holiness. We have been set apart by God through the great blood payment of Christ's death on the cross for a different purpose. So there's not simply the negative dimension to sanctification. Here there's the positive dimension. Sanctification is saying no at the right time to certain things. There's a refusal to use your members as instruments of unrighteousness. But it's also saying yes, it's yielding to the right person to present yourself to God as an instrument of righteousness. And don't miss the fact that verse 13 reminds us that this process of a holy life, this process of becoming conformed to Christ's image, is a cooperation between us and God. It includes the principle of yielding or presenting. And Christians tend to go to one of two extremes. One extreme is they just leave everything up to God and they say, unless God moves me and impresses me, I'm not going to do it. And the other extreme is they try to work it all up on their own and they don't look to God in His grace. And a verse that is often used and not used out of context is Philippians 2. In fact, why don't you turn there? You're in Romans. Turn past Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians. And then, if you will, go to Galatians and then Ephesians. Glad to see so many more of you are bringing your Bibles. Praise the Lord. So if you need a Bible, talk to me. We'll get you one. Philippians 2, look at verse 13. Paul writes, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So in practice, it looks like this. Some people take this verse and they say, well, if God doesn't give me a desire to read my Bible, then I guess I won't read it. Or if God doesn't give me a desire to witness, I guess I won't witness. Because God is at work in me to will and to work for his good pleasure. And so if I don't feel his will, I guess I won't do it. But if you were here in our exposition of Philippians, remember verse 13 can't be divorced from verse, divorced from verse 12. So then, my beloved brethren, just as you have always obeyed, not in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. He doesn't say work for your salvation. He doesn't say work up your salvation or work at your salvation. He says work O-U-T, out your salvation. You know it can't mean work for your salvation because the immediate context dismisses that. In the third chapter, he teaches there's nothing we can do to earn heaven. Not to mention he opens this great letter in the first verse calling God's people saints. Here in verse 12, he refers to God's people as beloved. 
only the people of God, only those who've been saved are called beloved. He doesn't say work F-O-R for, but work O-U-T. One little girl was listening to her pastor preach this passage, and she turned to her mom, and she said, Mom, you can't work out your salvation until God works it in first, right? And she was absolutely right. God has to first save you before you can begin to work it out. God working in your salvation is called justification. Your working out your salvation in cooperation with God is called sanctification. It's interesting, this word work out is used in Koine Greek, the Greek of the first century, of someone who would work out a mathematics problem until its completion. It was also used of someone who would mine a gold mine. If you owned a gold mine and it was just packed with gold, it does you no good until you begin to go in and you mine it out. That's the idea behind the word, mining a mine. You are to work out your salvation. Now go back to Romans 6 for a moment. Paul is encouraging us that there's some decisions that we need to make in cooperation with God. And if you just think that God is just going to magically levitate the Bible under your nose so you can read it, it's not going to happen. If you think God's just going to get me out of bed on Sunday morning, get me in the shower, in my car, and dress so I can come to church, it's not going to happen. It doesn't make sense mathematically, but the Christian life is 100% God and 100% man. And so Paul will say to the Colossians, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. I labor, but how do I labor? According to his mighty power. And so this process of sanctification, it's not some spiritual abduction. It's a result of God, as we submit to him, producing in us this new life. And then he says in verse 14, for sin shall not be master over you. Why? Because you're not under law. You're under grace. Now he opened this chapter with a discussion on sin and grace. And now he makes it very clear that you have a new master. His name is Jesus Christ. And so you go on presenting yourself to this new master. Uh, let me give you some other verses that teach this same principle. 1 Peter 5. Listen to this verse. 1 Peter 5, 5, and all of you, clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. Why? Because God, he says, is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Who's he writing to, saved or lost people? Saved. He's writing to people who are saved, and he's talking about them receiving grace. Uh, in the parallel passage in James in verse 4 and verse 6, he says, God gives a greater grace and then he quotes the same verse. God's opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. You see, some of us have had justifying grace, and we've been saved and we're grateful for it, but we are not experiencing the greater grace, the sanctifying grace that God has for us as believers, because we are unwilling to humble ourselves and present ourselves in terms of what our responsibility is. Let me give you another verse, 1 Timothy 4. He says this to Timothy, his son in the faith. Have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and for the life to come. Again, he's using an athletic illustration to drive home the point. Verse 7, have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. That's the negative command, just like we saw in Romans. 
On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. That's the positive command, and he repeats the word discipline again in verse 8. Now, this word comes from the gymnasium. It's gymnasia. We get our word gymnasium from it. You want to be in shape? Get out there and exercise. You want to be in spiritual shape? There's some decisions that you must make. Discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. You don't drift into godliness. If anything, you drift away from it. You don't drift into your prayer closet. If anything, you'll be by nature prayerless. There's some decisions we need to make as we present ourselves to God. The key to victory is first knowing something, that we have a choice, then letting it become a heartfelt truth where we can stand on it, considering it, and based on this knowing in this mind and this considering the heart and the will, we present ourselves to God. That's a daily choice that we need to make. Now, I'd been a Christian about eight months when I started studying the book of Romans, when I came to Romans 6, I'm not sure that I understood all that much, but I just knew that God wanted to do more in my life. God had already used me. The, the night I became a Christian, we had an assignment that we were supposed to go out and share the plan of salvation. And that first week that I was a Christian, someone came to Christ. I was amazed. But as I began to walk with God, I said, this Christian life is hard. And I said, this Christian life is difficult. And then I came to the point as I was reading Romans 6, this Christian life is impossible. It's impossible. No one can do it. And that's exactly where God wants to bring us, where we recognize we can't do it, but he can, but there's some choices we need to make. And so I remember one night on my knees, and I said, God, as much as is in me, all that I am, whatever you want to do in my life, you have to do it because I can't do it on myself and no sooner had I made that decision, within a week, God had put a seed in my heart to go into the ministry. And people all over the campus at Boston College were coming to faith in Christ. And there was a new power and a new realization of God working in and through my life. I was beginning to understand that when Christ died, I died. When he was raised, I was raised with him. And I'm still growing and exploring that truth. Now, some of us here this morning... We can't even begin to experience it because we've never received Christ. But most of you here have made that decision. And you have a decision to make. You can't casually approach the Scripture. God commands you to consider this truth. And until you let this truth reverberate in your heart and your soul till it is yours then you're never going to make the continual, habitual, ongoing presentation to God that he wants you to make. And you will live a defeated Christian life and remain a babe in Jesus Christ. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies so that you should obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. For sin shall not be master over you. You're no longer under law, you're under grace. God's amazing grace that will equip you to live a godly life. We're in a study of Romans and are in chapter 6, having concluded part 2 of a message entitled, How to Really Change. If you'd like to hear this or any of the messages from our series in Romans, why not download the Search the Scriptures app for iPhones, iPads, and Android devices? 
Just visit your iTunes store or Android marketplace and search for Search the Scriptures with Carl Brogy. You can also listen or download this or any of our STS studies from our website, searchthescriptures.org. And of course, if you'd like a CD or DVD copy, you can always call us at 877-787-7478 and request part two of How to Really Change, program ROM29. Tomorrow, we ask and answer the question, Whose slave are you? Join us then as we search the scriptures.